will give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard, so I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but has not given me over to death. He will never, ever give up on me. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. You are my God. I will give you thanks. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Fast love endures forever. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, you are good. Everybody say that with me. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, you are good. Say it louder. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, you are good. If you believe that, say it loudly. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, you are good. Amen. You can have a seat. I'm a little jealous of Tim playing the mandolin this morning. It's like gunning for my job. Man. 
So I'm <clears throat> attempting with the tie to do a little better. It's not Christmas. It's like it's almost Christmas. It's in between holidays, and so this is kind of abnormal. Um, some have asked why I didn't tuck it in because of all of our speakers, I am the least thin. So if I tuck it in, there's a little Michelin man going on, and uh, it's not happening today. So today I want to talk about tensions. There's tensions in every single Jesus follower's life. There's a positive side to the tension. There's a negative side to the tension. The first tension is example, the flesh and the spirit. When somebody gets saved, Jesus enters them. The spirit of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, lives inside of them. But Romans 7.15 says, I do not, this is Paul speaking, I do not understand what to do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Like, I feel, I feel that tension on a regular basis. The question is, which one are we feeding? Are we, by spending time in God's word and praying and connecting on a heart level with Almighty God, are we feeding our spirit or are we ignoring that and feeding the flesh and the sinful desires of the flesh? There's another tension that we've talked about before, the tension between truth and grace. And, and, and Andy Stanley talked about this in our Christian series. But some people live totally on the truth, 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 truth side. Like if you sin, they're going to smack you over the head with that sin and then drill it down into your heart until you feel the guilt of it. And you're lost and you're broken in your sin, right? And then there's people who are all about grace and they say that, oh, don't worry about your sin. It's totally forgiven. And then grace becomes a free ticket to do whatever you want, right? Because you're forgiven, right? So, but maybe that tension doesn't need to be resolved. It shouldn't be resolved because like Jesus, okay, the woman caught in adultery, she should have been stoned by their law. And the Pharisees were about to stone her. Jesus says, you who are without sin, throw the first stone. And they end up throwing their stones down on the ground and walking away. And what does Jesus say to her? Look, no one has condemned you. Neither do I. You are not condemned. Grace. But truth, go and sin no more. Because your sin is destructive. So it's got to be both. And then there's one that... Um, I've struggled with my entire life, and this tension, and really when we move to Ankeny and you meet a lot of new people, you really feel this tension um, of lifestyle evangelism, where you say, I'm just going to live my life the way that God tells me to in here, and then hopefully, hopefully, someone's going to ask, you live differently. Why do you live differently, right? Right? And there's this, there's this phrase, um, you've probably heard it before, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Like that used to be my favorite phrase because it was like, sweet, I don't have to say anything. Like I'm, I'm, in the, I'm like, I live a pretty good life. I screw up at least once a day. Um, <clears throat> don't ask my wife about that, but... Um, so I don't have to say anything, right? But then there's these other people that all they do is yell and scream 
the truth and the Bible and, and, and it just is, it's just all they do is talk, but sometimes their, their life doesn't really match up with their words, right? And so there's turmoil there and there's tension there. And oftentimes, like uh, DC Talk, the old, like old DC Talk said one time that the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who talk a lot, this is a paraphrase, who talk a lot, walk out the door, their door and then deny God with their lifestyle, right? Like people, the world outside cannot look in at us and they, there's no way that they resolve those tensions, right? But maybe it needs to be both, Maybe my heart change and my heart condition drives me to live the life that God wants me to live. And then when God gives me the opportunities to speak, I speak. Right? So there's this tension. Um, we were over Jacob Becky's house the other night and we were talking about the thought that we want to talk about more today. You're going to hear this a lot just because it, it is, I believe that the part of Mark that we're in and the gospel and Jesus really teaches this as one of uh, Jesus' top initiatives is to have and live with an eternal perspective. And the more that I've thought about that the last week, I define it as this, live with God on your mind, Right? It's not that hard to understand. Live with God on your mind. How often do I go through a day and I get to the end of the day or I wake up and I just, I realize, whoa, God, I have not talked to you at all. I have not acknowledged your role in my life today. I've just kind of done my thing, right? And, And what results is me living for the moment to moment on earth, what is right in front of me and I lose perspective of what I believe Jesus called us to is an eternal perspective. And so we were over at Jake and Becky's house, and um, Jake is more, you know, he's like, Jake's a lot more bold than I, and, and so Jake doesn't really suffer from, um, I look at Jake, and I don't think Jake suffers much from fear. He might say differently, but... I love Jake's passion about, like, for the first time in their small group, they're talking about this eternal perspective, and he's like, wait a minute, is this it? Like, is, is this life it? And so he actually thought, I'm like, dude, people don't actually take this seriously. They don't actually think these things. Like, should we move? Like, should we move to a different country? Should we move? So there's this tension. There's this tension in Jake that I love. Okay, should we move? Like, should I live in this house? Should I have all this stuff? Should I, should I move to a different country? Should I serve other people? Should I do these things? And so there's this tension. Today we're going to talk about the tension between rejoicing for our salvation. The title this morning is Rejoice with Fear and Trembling. Right? Rejoice with fear and t- trembling. There's a tension be- between rejoicing for our salvation, being thankful that God has sent his son Jesus to save us, and at the same time understanding that a day is coming, that we will stand before the almighty king of the universe, namely Jesus, who died for us. And yes, we rejoice for our salvation in him. But then understand that someday I'm going to stand face to face with my Savior. 
And the truth is that I'm going to recount with him the life that I lived. What? I mean, seriously, I think he's going to, what did you do with me? Right? That's a sobering thought. It's a humbling thought. Like, it really just is humbling. And as we sang those songs, you think, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do we understand the reality of the fact that we will stand face to face with that Savior someday? That's huge. That's big. Two things. I don't want to guilt anyone into anything here. But I want to give us a reality check of really what is going to come. The thought that, and whether you've heard this before or not, you've got to at this moment get rid of all of just all the mumble-jumble mess in your mind and just ask God to reveal to you in these moments really the importance and the heaviness of his holiness and, and, and who Jesus should be to us in our lives. Because number one, we are going to stand before Jesus. Get this, without Jesus, we are every single one of us on our way to hell for eternity. Without Jesus, there is absolutely no hope in this life on a day-to-day basis or after death. It doesn't exist. It's like, in our world, if a potter was to make a, a pot out of clay and make this pot for a specific purpose, the potter is never really going to understand what it is to be the clay and to hold all the stuff that this, this clay jar holds Right? The potter is not on a, on a one-to-one relational basis with the clay. But in our reality, Jesus the potter came and became the clay so that he could know everything that you and I are ever going to face. Like this is the Savior that we're going to stand face to face with. Turn to 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, just going to read 12 to 15. This is talking about a foundation on which we can build, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And this is what it says. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through Let me just say this real quick. We believe in eternal salvation. Once you're saved, you're not going to lose that. Okay? But when we stand before Jesus someday and we give an account for our life, the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, these are pictures of the kinds of actions, the kinds of works that we do with our life because 
of what we believe. And this is how we live out our life, right? And so what this is saying is the things that we do that will last for eternity are gold, silver, precious stones that when tested by fire are refined and they, they last. And these things that we do for eternity with Jesus, with God on our mind as we live and as we act are going to survive the test of fire and then we will be rewarded with these things. Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant, here you go. Here's your reward. But then the things that we did, wood, hay, stubble, the things that get burnt up and consumed by fire are all the things that we ever did for ourselves with an earthly perspective, thinking somehow that we could take all of our accumulations from here with us to heaven. And you know what? When those things are tested by fire, they'll burn up, they'll be gone. You cannot take them to heaven with you, and you will suffer loss. You will feel loss on that day. Like everything that I lived for on earth came to nothing, right? So you'll suffer loss, but yes, you'll still be saved. You'll still be in heaven, which is a glorious thing. So no matter where you are this morning, you can rejoice because of your salvation. But personally... As we'll see in a little bit, I want to come back to the throne of Jesus and have something to lay at his feet. I do not want to come before the throne of my Savior and have nothing to give to him. Revelation 4. Revelation 4. You, right now you feel like we're going in a lot of different places, but this really sets us up to get the point of Mark chapter 12 today. Revelation 4, starting in the second half of verse 6. Okay, And what, you might not even want to follow along with me. Just close your eyes. Just close your eyes and, and picture this. And around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes and all around them and within. And day and night, they never cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who lives, who is seated on the throne and worship him. They Cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. 
This is from Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, this is Isaiah having a vision, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Kyle talked about that last week. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. That's how intense this was. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I mean, picture that. These are angels. And Jesus on the throne. Angels with six wings. Two, they flew. Two, they covered their face. Why would they cover their face? Because they're looking on the king of the universe. Like, and they're yelling to each other. And their yells shook the ground. Shook the very structures. And they covered their face and they covered their feet and they flew and they covered up because he is so holy. So holy. I can't handle this. I can't handle this. And then Isaiah, he sees this and his response is right. I mean, what, what, what other response do you have when you see this? And you are seeing the angels of heaven covering their face and their feet because they can't be exposed to the glory and the holiness of an almighty God. What do you do? He says, woe is me, for I am of unclean lips, and I am of a people of unclean lips. And what does the angel do? He brings a coal, touches his lips, and says, your, your sins are atoned for. Do we understand, first of all, the holiness of God in this? And that even though he is so holy, all throughout the whole testament, people who looked on God would die because of how holiness, how how holy he was. And, and then for us, we were made clean to be able to enter into God's presence confidently through the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is incredible. And so there's this tension. We are excited about our salvation. We know the end. The battle is won, right? I mean, that's hope. That defines hope, that the battle is won. But then we know and we respect the day of the Lord. Because my only response, I hope, is humility and the fall on my face. And just to say, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Psalm 118, his steadfast love 
endures forever. We rejoice because the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. But as we turn to to Mark, it's a really sobering thought to think about, really, we got to pause and say, okay, in light of what is going to happen someday, in light of me seeing Jesus' face and standing before him, how am I living my life? What does my life look like? What am I doing on a daily basis with Jesus Christ? What kind of life? The Bible says that God's grace, God's mercy, specifically God's kindness, is meant to lead us to repentance. It's not just asking for forgiveness for our sins. It's like coming before God and in humility for the rest of my life, understanding my salvation, my eternal life hinges only on the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, I, honestly, you've heard this before, but I know myself, and so I don't doubt that there's a lot of people in the room like this, that we just don't live like we get it. So Mark chapter 12, right at the beginning, verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. What's a parable? What's a parable? A parable is essentially a real life but fictional story that would have made sense to the people that heard it because of their culture, right? But it had a spiritual life lesson application. Okay. Remember in Mark 4 and in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. This is my favorite parable. Um, Jesus has this huge crowd with him, and, and he just, I mean, this is an opportunity for him to like teach a big lesson every time he had a crowd, but somehow Jesus always managed to screw that up because he goes and tells parables and confuses people on purpose. Because he goes out, he's got this huge crowd, and he just tells a story that, yes, made sense to everyone that heard it because they were agricultural um, uh, culture at that time, but he said, so this farmer goes out and he starts throwing this seed all over the place. And some of the seed fell here on the path and thorns um, in good soil and all that stuff. And the different stuff resulted from different seeds falling in different places. And then, he, and then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Okay? Most of the people who heard that would have been like, yeah, it's a good story. You got it right, Jesus. That's how it works. Right? But later on, his disciples ask him specifically. Remember the message, just keep seeding? Like, the people, his disciples went to him and asked him, like, ah! No, I saw a few people falling asleep here, so I had to wake you up. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, he goes, he goes and, um, lost myself now. Uh, his disciples come back to him later and say, Hey, Jesus, what was that all about? And he says, it is for you to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Why was it? Because they wanted to know truth. They sought truth. They, they looked for it. They asked Jesus. Most people just heard that story and were like, oh, yeah, Jesus, duh, you got it right. You know? The purpose of a parable and how you need to see this this morning in your own life is to test a person's heart to see if it's in the right place to receive the truth that God is trying to teach them, right? Like, where is your heart this morning? 
because we could just read this. But, uh, yep, that's how it works. He's trying to teach us something. Now to set this up, there's a lot of setup for this, because if, if you don't, you won't, you won't get the, the, the heaviness of it. Okay? In Matthew 21, surrounding the same story, the same parable that Jesus tells, a few things happen that really get the audience primed and really ticked off at Jesus. Okay, his audience is the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the elders of the religious community. That's his primary audience, okay? And he also has an opportunity here to, that, the, that the rest of the people hear the implications of Israel's disobedience to God throughout the ages, okay? But surrounding this in, math, in the Matthew account, first, Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. Kyle talked about this last week. He cleanses the temple, and he throws over the money changers. He gets really upset. This is like righteous anger. I mean, he made a whip. Jesus, peaceful Jesus, made a whip because he was so righteously anger, angry at the people disrespecting his father's house. He throws these people out. And he says to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, (laughs) like the Gentiles and the religious leaders, you have made it a den of robbers. So he was challenging the religious leaders' piousness to God and their, their, their relationship with the one true God. He was also challenging and threatening the priests and the scribes' economic status with the Roman government because this was a good place for Rome to buy and sell. Okay, and then after that, in the, in the temple, the chief priests and elders go up to Jesus and they challenge his authority. They're like, all right, dude, you're messing life up for us. What authority do you have to be doing the things that you're doing? And Jesus, in his wisdom, responds and, and asks a question as his answer, okay? If you guys tell me the authority by which John the Baptist did what he did, then I'll tell you. If you get that right, then I'll tell you, right? And so they come back with him, back to him after deliberating, and they say, we don't know, right? Because if they had said it was from God, then Jesus would have said, then why didn't you follow him? Why, didn't you, why, didn't, why did you reject him? If they had said it was from man, then the people would have gotten mad at him because the people upheld John the Baptist as a prophet. So... They couldn't win, so they say, I don't know. Jesus says, then I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority. In that story, Jesus was essentially applying, and they would have understood that he was implying that John the Baptist and that Jesus got their authority to do what they did from the same source, God the Father. And by them rejecting John and eventually rejecting the message of Jesus, they were rejecting the God that they claimed to serve with their actions and with their laws and with their religiousness. And then Jesus starts to really just jab at their hearts. And he tells this parable of these two sons. I think about this with my own kids sometime as whether to discipline them for certain things or not. But it's a story of how a father tells his two sons to go out into the vineyard. Vineyards were a very normal thing to work these days. That was, a, that was the, what farmers did. So he said, sons, I want you to go out into the vineyard. The first son says, no. 
immediately. No, I'm not going to do it. Later on, he changes his mind and says, yeah. And he goes, and he, his, in his actions, he obeys because he knows that's the right thing to do. The second son says, yes, right away, right? And then he goes and he changes his mind. He doesn't go and obey. He doesn't do what he said he would do. Who was right? You see, the religious leaders spoke a fine word, but then they rejected the truth of God and the truth that Jesus was trying to teach them with their heart condition and their actions. There's this tension. We sing this song from the inside out, everlasting. God changed me from the inside out because there's this tension of, yeah, I want to live a good life, but I know that salvation is not by what I do. I can't earn salvation, but I want to live a good life, but I can't earn it, right? The way they got it wrong was to create, religion says, do and you'll be accepted. Jesus' salvation says, there's nothing you can do to be accepted. So, here's my son Jesus, I will die for you. There's this tension, okay? The way we need to live in this tension for everyone that knows Jesus is to say, because of what Jesus did for me, and my heart is overflowing with rejoicing. This is how I'm going to live my life. And I seriously need to challenge my thinking if my life does not look like the way Jesus wanted it to look and, 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 and pursue God, right? Pursue God. So now the parable of the tenants or the parable of the vineyard comes at a time where it just tops it off for making the Pharisees mad. It's like, Jesus, if you wanted to make them mad, you got it. Okay? So he goes on. A man planted a vineyard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this really easy for you. Remember, parables, real life story, teach a spiritual lesson. There's a bunch of different characters in this story. And so up on the screen you're going to see all of the characters in this story and how they correspond to the religious lesson that we're supposed to learn. So, number one character, the man or the landowner. Okay? This is God. God the Father. The vineyard, number two, the vineyard. This is Israel or God's kingdom to the people that would have been hearing uh, this story. Number three, the tenants. These are the religious, Jewish religious leaders. Number four, the landowner's servants. So the landowner, God's servants. These are the prophets of God who through time had been obedient and preached God's word to the nation of Israel. Number five, the landowner's, God's beloved son who is Jesus. And then number six, and this shows up right at the end, the other tenants, okay? These are the Gentiles, or that's us, if you're not Jewish. You can be Jewish and love Jesus, okay? But it's the Gentiles and everyone that makes up the, the church that we now know, okay? So, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. This was common. They would have understood it. What is happening is God 
did all the work and provided for and built up the nation of Israel to be what it was, to be a people after his own heart, to follow him, to bless the entire rest of the world. All the nations of the world would be blessed through the nation of Israel. This was God's doing. And he put it over tenants. He, he gave the nation of Israel into the hands of the religious leaders for good keeping, to lead them, to lead them spiritually, to obey God. And they took, okay, when a season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. I was, I was listening recently to Beth Moore. She spoke at um, 2014 Passion conference and she's really good and she uh she was talking about time right so many of us live in the time that has already come and gone we can't get that back we live in the regrets of it we live in whatever that is but the way we need to think about time is time is always coming there is a time and this is a season came okay there is a time coming Every single, we, you know, you look forward to a vacation, you prepare for it. You look forward to Christmas, it's coming, you prepare for it. Like, we look forward to the coming of Jesus. Are we preparing for it? A time is coming, and here, a, a, a season came, he sent a servant, a prophet, to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, they sent another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him and so many others. Some they beat and some they killed. Okay, here's just some examples. In Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah the prophet was beaten, rejected by the people. In Matthew 14, John the Baptist was beheaded. In 2 Chronicles 24, you see that other prophets were stoned, killed, beaten, rejected. Okay? This is, what, this is what Jesus is referring to in this story. Verse 6. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. In that culture, um, possession was nine-tenths of the law. Like, if they knew, okay, the people hearing this knew, and if this was an actual real story that happened, this could have happened, they knew that, hey, if there is no heir then the land goes to whoever is in possession of the land, right? And so their plan, kill the heir. When the owner dies, it's ours, right? I love this. It goes on. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Okay, in saying this, Jesus is essentially, I think by now, it says at the end that the, 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 the hearers, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders, they perceived that Jesus was talking about them. I think by this point, they probably get the point. Jesus is talking about us. 
Okay? And so they understand essentially what Jesus is predicting. He is saying to them, you are going to murder me. Like, I claim to be the son of God. I am the son of the landowner. You who I'm talking about, you're going to kill me. This is, this is huge. You're going to kill me in an attempt to take back your religion. Not in an attempt to actually do what God wants you to do, but you're going to kill me in an attempt to take back your religion from what I am teaching you in order to do and live and create this, this, this form of God. And you could do whatever you want. You could create your own rules and you can hold other people to them. Because at that point, Judaism had, it, it, was, it, was, it was no longer about connecting and a heart connection for those religious leaders with the God of the universe. It wasn't about serving God. It was about being religious. Their religion at the time held them in good standing with the Roman authorities. They didn't want to lose that. It was all about not obeying, but doing. Okay? Verse 9. This is my favorite part. Jesus says, what, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Others, Gentiles, the church. He will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. If you read that account in Matthew, and then you put it together with the account of Mark and get a full picture of what is happening here, this is how it reads. In Matthew, it says, it goes like this. Jesus said, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And then in Matthew, the priests actually answer him. And this is their answer to him, having heard this story and how it works out. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. So you put those two together, and this is what I think it looked like. Jesus says, when the owner returns, what do you think he's going to do to those unfaithful tenants who beat and killed his son? They say, he's going to put them to a miserable death. And then Jesus responds and agrees with them and says, yes, he's going to destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. I mean, this is crazy. The chief priest. Priests just proclaimed their own fate. And then what did they do? They went away and changed nothing. How am I the same way? I'm convicted by God. We've got to be really, really careful when we pick up the Bible and read it. And here's why. Because when I read something, I, I know that the Holy Spirit is inside of me. But when I read scripture, I'm convicted by it in my heart to change something in my life, and then I don't. 
I choose, like, I, I don't just not understand it, and it's hard to understand. No, I read something I'm convicted by, and then I do not act on it. You know what happens? It becomes easier to then pick this up again, read it because I know I'm supposed to read it, be convicted by it, and then walk away and change nothing. And then I pick it up on a daily basis. I'm convicted by it, and every single day I walk away and I change nothing. Do you understand the destructiveness of that habit? That is not allowing Scripture and allowing the Spirit of God to transform your mind. That's reading Scripture. That's being religious, reading Scripture, doing what you know you you should do, and then being stubborn enough not to change anything based on how God is convicting your heart. This is a big deal. And then in this story, for, for Jesus to say, you've been unfaithful with what God has given you. He's going to take it away from you, and he's going to give it to other tenants. In the Jew's mind at that time, no way. That did not happen. Like, the Jews are the people of God. This would have sealed the deal for how angry they would have been at Jesus because then they desired to kill him, but they did nothing because they were afraid of the people and they went away unchanged. This should not be. This brings us back to this tension provided in this story. Verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected. You hear that when it was originally written in Psalm 118? And it was a reason for rejoicing for those who were faithful to God. But in Mark 12, it's used as a warning to those who are religious, but their hearts are far from God and their actions do not match up with what God is teaching them. They are living for the here and now. They are not living for eternity. Band, you guys can come back up. I'm not just talking about someone who claims the name of Jesus and then sins, right? Because we know that that happens. We know that that happens. We, we proclaim that we love Jesus. We, he is the Savior of our life. And then we sin on a daily basis, whether it's through our thoughts or our actions. David, I mean, he's like, he's crazy nuts sinner, Right? He was a man after God's own heart. That's what scripture says. This is a man after God's own heart. How did that happen? Because his heart condition came before God in humility and said, God, I know I'm a sinner. And he pursued God with his life, even in the midst of his sin. He pursued God. God, forgive me. And repented and walked away from me. Messed up again. He repented and walked away from me. Messed up again. It just keeps happening. I'm not talking about sin. Question number one for us this morning, for anybody in the room who is in this place. Have you received Jesus as the Savior of your life? Have you admitted your sin to God and acknowledged your inability to save yourself and ask God through his son Jesus to save your soul? Essentially, what have you done with Jesus? The first act of obedience is to believe that Jesus is the only way to get to the Father. And if you have done that, which I'm assuming that most people in the room have, 
if you have done that, then the tension is, is, is living a life of rejoicing for your salvation, but understanding the holiness of Jesus and the fact that he is coming back. The Bible says, for it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. We're gonna stand before Jesus, the Savior of our souls. And so there's this tension. See, the, the tenants, they bore fruit, right? They worked the fields. There was grapes. They bore fruit. But it was not lasting fruit. It was not fruit that they could keep. It was not fruit that lasted for eternity. It was fruit that was going to be taken away from them. Why? Because in and of themselves, they refused to give the fruit that they had bore by their actions to God. They, had, they refused to acknowledge God's role in their everyday life. And the only way that we can bear lasting fruit and grow the kingdom of God is to do it through the power and acknowledgement of the Holy Spirit in our lives that God the Father has given us to live out. How do we understand my life? Am I serving out of obligation or for religion's sake to serve God, to gain something from Him? Or am I serving and obeying God because, and here's where the tension makes a little more sense to me, I'm serving and obeying God because my heart is overflowing and rejoicing for my salvation. Right? The heart condition comes first, and then it results in a life lived for the glory of God. All the while understanding that when I stand before Jesus, I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and have a reward that stood the test of fire to give back to him. Do we get this? I mean, it's a big deal. Jesus wants our everything. And so as we worship together, we're going to take communion. And if you are in that place where you have not come to Jesus and admitted your sin to him and, and know that he is the only way for salvation, this is the time. This is the biggest, biggest part of life, biggest decision. This is your eternity. This is the time. Deal with that now. Talk to somebody near you that you trust. Come talk to me. Deal with that now. For the majority of you, this is a time to remember what Jesus did for us and his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. Remember that. And then as you take the bread and the juice, like, be, you're in the presence of God. Like, God, you are so holy. You're holy enough that Jesus could be the right sacrifice for my sins. God, I, here it is. Here is everything that I am Woe is me, you have saved me, so here I am. God, we just, we want to live in this healthy tension. We want, God, you to draw us to you. We want to pursue you. We want to live with an eternal perspective. And so, God, thank you for our salvation. And, and God, this is me just saying to you, here I am, in spite of my fear, in spite of my sin that pulls me back in the flesh, and in spite of all of that.
here I am. Use me, God, for your kingdom with all of Jesus.